from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I have it open to Ephesians, pardon me, Ephesians chapter 2. I was going to read Ephesians, I don't know why I said what I said. Um, Nevertheless, I not only invite you but encourage you to follow along. We will read the first ten verses of Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Thank you, Tim. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are indeed grateful for this opportunity together. Thank you for your word, for the living word and your written word. And I pray that you, by your spirit, will enable us to hear today what you have to say to us through your word. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm wondering if there's any here this morning who have ever seen a dead person brought back to life. It it happened in the Old Testament. Uh, It happened in the New Testament. Jesus raised the son of a widow from from the dead in the town of Nain, Luke 7. Jesus raised Jairus' son or daughter from the dead in Luke 8. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead in John 11. Uh, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead in Acts chapter 9. Um, Certainly poor Eutychus died as he fell from the second story window after falling asleep during one of Paul's all-night sermons. We learn of that in Acts chapter 20. And then Paul went down the steps and raised him back to life. And of course, Jesus... Jesus himself was raised from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion. 
And at that time, many people who had died in Jerusalem were also raised from the dead. But does that still happen today? Does God still bring the dead to life? I want to say emphatically, yes, God certainly could do that physically, but most certainly, every time God saves someone from their sins, He is bringing one who is spiritually dead to spiritual life. Today we're going to talk about what God does to bring a dead sinner to life, and we're going to talk about why He does that. This this work that God does reveals His power uh, in incredible ways. Paul's letter to the Ephesians shows us God's power. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14 through 14, highlights the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. Then, in chapter 1, verses 15-23, through 23, Paul prays. And he prays that the Holy Spirit will speak to us through the Apostle Paul's prayer, saying, among other things, I want you to know that God's power is at work in you who believe. So the power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the Father in heaven is the very same power that is at work in you who believe. So Paul prays, for the Ephesian believers because he wants them to know and experience God's power at work in their lives. Now, this is a big deal. The the Scriptures make some pretty bold promises of what the power of God at work in your lives will produce. And here's just four examples of God's power at work in lives today. One, God empowers you to develop Christ-like character for the praise of His glory. Now, do you ever struggle with sinful habits? (laughs) Uh, You you need to be reminded of God's power. Uh, Secondly, God empowers you to spread the joy of Christ to, to others. Let me ask, do you ever cower in evangelistic opportunities rather than boldly speak of Jesus. You you need to be reminded of God's power. Three, God empowers you to serve others for Christ's sake. But I'm wondering, do do you ever battle being selfish or lazy? Maybe this morning you need to be reminded of God's power at work in you. Fourth, God empowers you to joyfully endure suffering for Christ's sake. But maybe there's been times where you've wanted to quit. Uh, Do you ever think living for Christ just really isn't worth all the fuss? Do Do you ever grumble and complain that life is too hard as a Christian? Then maybe you need to be reminded of God's power at work. God's power is at work in the lives of His children. Do do you believe this? Maybe you want to believe this, but it's impossible, or excuse me, but it's possible that your mind and your heart are still plagued with doubt. It's true God's power is at work in your life, but it's equally true that we often feel weak. Why is that? 
Well, Paul answers it best in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10, where he tells us that our weaknesses teach us to rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Uh, Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, that he delights. Paul says, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, because when I am weak, then I am strong. So that is, when, when he is weak, he's most keenly aware that it is the power of Christ that gives him the strength that he needs. So without weakness, we are all prone to rely on ourselves. And in our own strength, we won't accomplish anything good for God's glory. We, we may accomplish some good things, but in our own strength, we will do it for our own glory and not for God's glory. So, weakness is good. But weakness is not good if our response isn't to run to Jesus. Our, our weakness should drive us to Jesus, to trust and glory in Jesus, not in ourselves. But here, here is our struggle, our our weaknesses run so deep at times that we fail to keep believing in and hoping in and trusting in the power of God. Can I, can I really honestly expect God to produce Christ-like character in me for the praise of God's glory? Can I really honestly expect God to make me a bold and effective witness for Christ? Can, can I really honestly expect God to make me a joyful servant to others for Christ's sake, even if it costs me everything? Can, can I really honestly expect God to make my heart willing to endure suffering, even, even physical death, if necessary, if that's what it takes to obey and love God? Can, can I really expect that? And again, the answer is a resounding Yes, and today's text found in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7, will give us some additional proof that God's power is at work in your lives to do these very things. In short, these seven verses tell you that you were, you were spiritually dead and now you are alive in Christ. And this is true because of God's power at work in you. So point number one in your outline is this. Don't forget what you once were. Now, obviously, when I say what you once were, I'm speaking to people who've been born again. I'm speaking to people who are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their, for their salvation. I'm not talking to people who have heard a lot of things about Jesus but have never entered into a personal relationship with him through repentance and faith. I'm not talking to people who know what is true, but refuse to humble themselves under the lordship of Christ. I certainly don't know your hearts, and in truth, you may not even know your own heart. But God does, and it's my prayer that as we work through this passage, God will make it clear to you if these Next three things that I'm going to say were true of you or are true of you today. Well, what do verses one, uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, what does it say? It begins by saying this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once 
lived. In other words, you, you were dead. Again, I'm saying this to people who have been already made alive, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment, but here is evidence that God's power is at work in your life. It's imperative that you don't forget that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what is a trespass? It's an offense. It's a wrongdoing, a moral wrong. Um, it may not even be intentional, but nonetheless, it's wrong. A, a sin is literally missing the mark. God's righteousness is the mark, and all people miss it. All people fall short, either by committing sin of commission or sins of omission. That is either by what we do or what we don't do. Uh, Romans 6 or 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The text says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in once you used to live. It, it's obvious that Paul is isn't talking about physical death because he reminds them of how they live. But how did they live? They lived in their transgressions and sins. You could say they are, they are in fact, walking dead men. Um, that is, they were alive physically, but spiritually they were dead. They were dead towards God. They lacked any ability or desire to live in obedience to God for His glory. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that spiritually dead people can't do any good things. They can, but they will never do good things for God's glory. They won't be motivated by a love for God. It will always come back to something or somehow to be a love for self. Therefore, any good thing they do is not righteous before God. So walking dead men, walking dead men are totally depraved. They're not as bad as they could be, but in every area of their lives, they are really bad. It's true of their emotions, how they feel and respond. It's true of their intellect, the way that they think. It's true of their will, decisions that they make. Men who are dead in their sins cannot and will not come to God, obey God, and love God. Romans 3 10 through 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is not, this is not a pretty picture. But that's what you once were. You were spiritually dead towards God. But that's not all. You were also enslaved. Verse 2 continues, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So if it's not sobering enough to realize that you were once spiritually dead, this is even worse. You were enslaved. But to what or to whom? Well, first, you were enslaved to the ways of the world. Um, what's that? Well, it's a way of life without God or even against God. It's a life that is governed by what you want, not God. It's really a self-centered life. So when you follow the ways of this world, you aren't concerned about obeying God for His glory. Your only concern is what you want. 
And when confronted with what God wants, you reject it because you would rather have what you want. And second, you were enslaved to the devil. Um, The end of verse 2 says, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Uh, Jesus in John 12.31 identifies Satan as a prince of this world. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Back here in Ephesians 2.2, 2, it says that when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, you followed the prince of the power of the air. And, and then we read the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in other words, those who reject Christ, those who refuse to repent and believe on Jesus alone for salvation, those who refuse to love and obey Jesus. This text says it's the spirit of the devil at work in them. And Paul says that's what you once were. You were enslaved to the devil. But we we can't just blame the world or the devil. Third, you were enslaved to your own sinful flesh. Verse 3 says... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So this text reminds us that at one time, our bodies and our minds were filled with the sinful desires of the flesh, such as sexual sexual immorality, impurity, sensual living, idolatry, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, uh, factions, envy, drunkenness, and the like. At one time, these things filled your life. This was what you wanted in life. So, this is not good. This is not good news. What we have seen so far is bad, but it even gets worse before it gets better. You were dead, you were enslaved, and you were also condemned. The end of verse 3 says, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you know what that means? It it means that God was angry with you. God's judgment was upon you. The sentence of death was on you, and justly so. God, God was not being unfair when you lived under His condemnation for your sin. God is holy and righteous and just, and therefore must punish sin. All human beings are born as sinners. We, we all sin with Adam. We were born guilty before God. And because of that, we deserved death. We deserved eternity in hell, suffering and torment and agony forever. All of us rightly deserve God's wrath. So don't forget what you once were. Dead, enslaved, condemned. That's what you once were. That's the bad news. Are you ready for some good news? Verse 4 begins with a contrast. It's a simple word, but it indicates that what follows is very much different from what preceded it. Verse 4 begins by saying, but God. (laughs) 
Yes, man is dead, enslaved, condemned, but God. But, but God did some amazing things. What did he do? Well, let's look at verses 5 and 6 to see what God did, and we'll come back to verse 4 to see why he did them. In verses 1 through 3, we were exhorted, don't forget what you once were. Here we can say, don't miss, why you, or don't miss what you now are. Verses 5 and 6, we're told, but God... But God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is amazing. You, you were dead, enslaved, condemned. Now, you are made alive in Christ. Paul, Paul isn't talking simply about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's already been established as true. Paul's talking here about something much more personal for you. Through a living union or relationship with Jesus, you share in the resurrected life of Jesus. How does this happen? Well, it happens because God made you alive in Christ. You were dead. What? What capability does a dead man have? I mean, a dead man can do nothing. If a dead man was floating in the water face down and I threw him a life buoy, what would he do? Absolutely nothing. Why not? Well, it's because dead dead men can't respond. Now, think about this. When... While dead, you had no ability or desire to obey and love God. You were dead towards God. It's not that you were physically dead. It's not that you had no desires, but you had no ability or desire to obey God and to love God. You only loved yourself. But, But now that God has made you alive in Christ, you have a desire and an ability to obey and love God. You you were dead to God, now you are alive in Christ to God. Uh, Consider Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 through 37, uh, 25 through 27. This is one of the key Old Testament passages that promises and points to what will happen in the lives of God's people in the new covenant that's established with the blood of Christ. We celebrated the new covenant when we drank of the cup together this morning. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 says, this is what was promised from the Old Testament, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here we see that God is the one that gives you a new heart. He removed the hard and stubborn heart that resists and rebels against God and he gave you a heart of flesh which which means it is a heart that's soft and responsive to God it's 
a heart that's filled with a desire for God to be your God. It's a heart that desires to obey and love God. Now, you want to see something really fascinating? Turn, turn with me to Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. Here, here is a vision that the prophet Ezekiel had of God painting this vivid picture of him giving dead people new life. Ezekiel 37, beginning with verse 1. Ezekiel 37, beginning with verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Folks, we were really dead spiritually. Why are we now alive? It's because God chose to make us alive. <laughs> to, to God be the glory. Great things He has done. In fact, back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. So, your new birth had nothing to do, it had nothing to do with you taking the initiative to come to God first. We, we were dead spiritually. It's, it's when we were dead spiritually that God made us alive in Christ. Just in case you missed the point, Paul inserts a little phrase, it's by grace you have been saved. What, what, what is grace? It's God's free giving. We met no conditions that merited our salvation. In fact, all the opposite was true. We deserve God's wrath. But instead, God sent His Son to be the sacrificial lamb, and in doing so, purchased our redemption, thereby paving the way for God to pour out His free grace into our lives. You were dead 
You were enslaved. You were condemned. But, but God, but God made you alive with Christ. Now, in that same vein of thought, you are raised up with Christ and you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Your identity is in Christ. You are no longer an object of wrath. Instead, you have a position of favor with God. God is not against you, but for you. You have peace with God. So, the communion table reminds us that we are, we are no longer sinners. We are saints. We've been, we've been saved. We've been set apart to belong to God. We are saints who still, still struggle with sin, but being a sinner is not our identity. Being a saint is set apart to belong to God in Christ. So now, here, here's the question. You were dead, but God made us alive. Why, why is that? Well, the answer to this question is important, and the text gives us two very clear reasons. Um, and, and God doesn't want you to misunderstand why you are not now what you once were. God, God didn't save you because He saw something good in you. If you think God saved you because He saw something good in you, then you've entirely missed the point of verses 1-3. through three. We, we were objects of God's wrath, and justly so. It's true that God created us and that we are made in His image, but knowing that we were created with, by God with the capacity to have a relationship with Him makes our sin and disobedience all the worse. God deserves our worship and allegiance. Instead, we stubbornly and rebelliously went our own way. We hate God and reject God, choosing instead in our own sinful pride to assert our own will as the most important thing in life. So why are you not now what you once were? Why, why did God save you? There, there are two reasons given in this text. And the first is this, God is rich in mercy, verse 4 begins um, saying this, but God being rich in mercy. We, we had absolutely no reason to expect God to treat us with favor. We deserve God's wrath. Instead, God gave us His mercy, which means that God didn't give us what we deserve. Mercy comes from God's heart. He is rich in mercy. We're saved because of something excellent that came from God's heart, not our own. God, God didn't give what we deserve, and deserve. Instead, He responded to our sin with mercy. Verse 4 continues, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Here, here we find the second reason why God saved you. God loved you with a great love even when we were dead in our trespasses. But how did God do this? How did God show His love? Romans 5.8, I quote as we began together today, but God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, here, here's the key. God didn't 
love us because we were worthy of His love. God loved us to display the, the greatness of His glory. Uh, we see this in verse 7. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, what, what does it mean that the riches of God's grace are immeasurable? Um, it's, it's like you being asked to count the number of grains of sand along every single shoreline on the entire face of the earth. Uh, now, maybe that's too big to comprehend. Uh, we could also say it's like you being asked to count the number of grains of sand along the shoreline of Lake Michigan. So, you, you go spend the afternoon counting and come tell me how many grains of sand there are between Milwaukee and Chicago. The point is, you can't do it. It's immeasurable. So too are the riches of God's grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ. Folks, for all eternity, forever and ever and ever, God will be showing or displaying His, His kindness to us for His own sake. Um, and we're going to see more and more of it throughout all eternity. And I say it's for His own namesake because the verb show is in the middle voice, which means that the subject of the verb, verb acts in his own interest. In other words, God will exhibit his kindness to the saints for his own glory or in order for him to be glorified. That's, that's what's going to be happening for all eternity. That's, that's why God created you. That's why God saved you to live for the praise of his glory. And so with that in mind, we conclude this morning with this one Final charge for you, embrace God's purpose for you. God's, God displays the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward you in Christ for His own glory. You were dead. God made you alive in Christ. God's kindness or goodness to us in Christ is immeasurable. God did this so that you will live for His glory, not your own. That's our purpose. That's why you exist. And as the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is this. The chief end of man is to live for God's glory and to enjoy Him forever. Is that your heartbeat this morning? to live for God's glory and to enjoy Him forever? If it is, I encourage you to praise God for His mercy and love to you. I, I encourage you to treasure Jesus. I, I encourage you to make much of Jesus, not just when we gather together on a Sunday morning, but every, every day of the week. If if living for God's glory is not your heartbeat this morning, 
I would encourage you to cry out to God for mercy. Cry out to God for mercy. And um, there is nothing that we deserve. There is nothing that we can, should expect God to do for us in our sinful state when we're dead in our sin. But God is rich in mercy. And God has chosen to love us with a great love. And so if you're here this morning and, and you say, you know what, I don't, I don't have that heartbeat to live for God's glory. I love doing what I want to do. I, I really honestly don't care much about what God has called me to do. And if that's the heartbeat of where you're at this morning, you're not in a good spot. And I would just urge you to cry, cry, out, cry out to God for mercy. And he is a God that is great in mercy. Let's pray together.